Well, good morning. It is good to see you all this morning on a spring morning. I love the, the change of the season where you begin to see the flowers budding out and then the threat of frost to kill them all off. Just, I, I do love the springtime, though. I love the rain and the coolness of the mornings and uh, the thunderstorms. That's one of my favorite things about weather, actually, is the thunderstorms that move across and you watch these magnificent displays of the power of God and how minuscule they are in compared to the power of God, but how powerful they are to us. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to continue our study here in the book of Philippians, and we are uh, into chapter 3 this morning, Philippians chapter 3. As we do so, I uh, was put on the spot, so I will say something about what Cindy means to us. Actually, that was already going to happen, but... uh, We are very thankful. Cindy has been a tremendous blessing. I just want to speak briefly uh, on this issue. Cindy has been our church secretary for 25 years. Uh, 25 years is a long time. That's three full-time senior pastors uh, that she has uh, ministered to and alongside. Uh, She is a brain trust. There's file cabinets in the office, and Cindy knows uh, far more than those file cabinets could ever contain. And uh, we rely on her so much. And so we will indeed be missing her as she retires. But this past week, a couple of her grandkids came in. And you should have seen the way that uh, Cindy just lit up when those little guys came in and were busy about the things of the office. She took them around showing everything in the office and uh, just a tremendous blessing. And with Joe's retirement about a year ago, uh, it was time for Cindy to retire as well. She'd been uh, needing to do this, we're glad that she has the opportunity, but indeed, as Scott said, it is bittersweet. Uh, we are going to miss her immensely. Uh, she means a lot to me. There's very few. In fact, the word secretary means secret keeper. Uh, that's what the word actually means. And ultimately, it refers to the role and the function that a secretary has. Secretaries know everything uh, that takes place in the office, and some of those things need to be cautiously Uh, preserved and uh, not just broadcast. And so I praise the Lord for the discretion that Cindy has shown. The men that she has served as, uh, who have been the senior pastor here, myself included, have all trusted in her. And we praise the Lord for her. And these men all have very strong wills. And uh, she has served well with each of us and served with distinction. And so please, if you can't make it on Friday, then please try to slip in sometime during this week. Cindy's here from 9.30 to 3.30 every day. Uh, Slip in and just just express your appreciation for her uh, and uh, ask the Lord to be at work in her life as she moves into this new phase of life and ministry. Also, uh, if you are aware of anyone who is looking for a position uh, as a church secretary, we need one now. And uh, so have them reach out to me as well. Uh, The work that Cindy does is behind the scenes. You don't see it very often. You may talk to her on the phone, uh, but what she does enables all of the rest of us to conduct ministry within this fellowship. And so we praise the Lord for her and for Sarah as well in the role that she plays. Uh, She'll be taking on a bit more role until we can hire again. And so just be in prayer for that position. The Lord would lead there as well. Uh, 25 years is a long time, and uh, I praise the Lord for the work that has gone into those 25 years 
And we praise the Lord for the longevity that has been found in our office. That is a very rare thing, and we praise the Lord for that as well. Taking our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We are uh, returning here, and it is appropriate and fitting for us to uh, consider, as we come out of the Easter season, consider briefly the disciples of Christ, which are really found here, at least the idea, the concept is found here as we begin to study what it looks like to avoid running after the world. There is a, a whole sect of the Christian church that is running after the world, and there is tremendous danger in doing so, and Paul is going to call that out. Remember where he left us off in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, and before that and prior to that, he's reminding us that we are to be those who are straining towards the goal, following after Paul's example, pressing in, leaning in to cross the finish line, and he says, follow my example as I followed Christ. And so that has been our pattern, but now he breaks from that, and he begins to say that there are those in the church who run after the things of the world. A Christian magazine years ago ran a parable of sorts in their, their, one of their articles, and that article imagined the response to Christ if he had hired a consulting firm. And given uh, our need for a secretary and given where we have been at through uh, the resurrection season, it is wise. I thought this was an appropriate time for us to look at this little illustration for us. It says, if Jesus had hired a consulting firm to evaluate the 12 men that he was considering for his disciples, what would have been the report? And so, here's the little parable. It reads, From the office of the Jordan Management Consultants. Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have selected for management positions in your new ministry organization. All of them have now taken a battery of tests and interviews, and it is our unanimous opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude. They do not demonstrate team concepts and have little, if any, managerial abilities and proven capabilities. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to offensive temper. Andrew is not a leader and prefers to remain anonymous. James and John, brothers of the family of Zebedee, of the father of their father Zebedee, will more than likely place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas, he harbors serious doubts and will no doubt undermine morale. James and Thaddeus have leaning towards a radical social agenda. <laughs> we feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by our Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. However, we are pleased to inform you that one of your prospects shows great potential. He's a man of resourcefulness. He is a keen business mind and adept at finance. He is highly motivated and personally ambitious. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your chief financial officer and right-hand man. Right up to the end of the disciples' three years of ministry along Jesus, no one suspected Judas of any sort of disloyalty. As far as the other disciples knew, Judas was the one who seemed to have it all together. And the disciples most likely to fail miserably, was Peter. And yet Christ would invert that entirely on its head. The idea that we focus on this morning is this. Paul's appraisal of false teachers serves as a challenging evaluation of the nature of our own walk with Christ. 
Paul is challenging you and I to look internally, to do some self-assessment. But he's doing that not only through his example as he's saying, I've pressed on, I've leaned into the finish line. He's also doing that in reminder of the false teachers that exist, those who look like, smell like, and act like believers in the church, maybe even leaders in the church. Paul says, watch out for them. So this morning as we begin to look into verse 18 of Philippians chapter 3, let us go to our Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our time here in the text. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you grateful that we have the patterns that have gone on before us. We look at the twelve. And from an earthly, a temporal perspective, we would have said there would have been 11 washouts and one success. But the one that we see as success is Judas, the one who would betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Lord, I praise you that Paul is helping to reorient our thinking. We live in a materialistic society today we live in a society that is inundated even just this past week to former megachurch leaders facing both legal crisis and their names back in the news for reasons that it should not have been Lord, we are filled with those who are driven to see driven people succeed and we view those who are driven as those that we idolize and we follow after. But I praise you that Paul has inverted for us the concepts of frail humanity. Finite and weak though we are, I praise you that your Spirit aids and guides us as we seek to follow the example that Paul has left for us as he follows Christ. Or this morning, as Scott mentioned earlier, it has been a long and busy week before and will again be this week, so we ask that you would allow us to quiet our hearts before you this morning, that we would have minds that are attuned to listen to your word, hands that are willing to do it, souls that are refreshed in the nourishment and the satisfaction of being in unity and in harmony with one another because of the Spirit of God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity we have to spend in your word. Give me the words to speak and us hearts to listen, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all of these things. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we begin in verse 18, I want you to notice the transition. So I'm going to start in verse 17 and we'll read through verse 18 and 19. The scripture says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory, in their, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. As we begin, Paul begins to define a sad appraisal, a sad appraisal of the events, the people who are involved in some of those events that are happening in this moment as Quill touches parchment in the land of Philippi, the city of Philippi. But 2,000 years worth of church history hasn't removed the imminency, the presence of these events happening in our world today. In fact, because of the news cycle the way that it is today, when it happens in our society, you begin to see it pop up 
over and over and over, and you begin to see names who have led uh, ministries, led churches, but have led because of selfish ambition and selfish reasons. And Paul begins to help us to discern who we are speaking of and who we are not speaking of. It is very important as a believer in Jesus Christ that you don't just automatically write off anybody that you don't like in the church. But it is also very important that you understand that even though somebody you may like in the church, that you are drawn to their personality, is not who you think they are. And we can dismiss and excuse a lot of sin nature when we begin to see those things in them. And Paul says, no, watch out for them. Be careful of them. And he does so with tears streaming down his cheeks. How and what can move the Apostle Paul, chained to a praetorian guard, under house arrest in Rome? What can cause tears when he thinks of someone else? This is Paul's grief as it is expressed here. When we last studied, this has been a few weeks ago, when we last studied Philippians together, we left off in verse 17 where Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Saying, watch the pattern of faithful Christians. But now, without even skipping a beat, we stopped for two weeks, but Paul didn't. Paul didn't stop here. He said, join in imitating me, follow after those who are following after Christ. Let us be positive examples. Let us follow positive examples of Christ's likeness and godliness. But be careful. In the church, there are those who are not following after Christ. Paul was the positive example, but there are others who penetrate the church's fellowship and they become leaders in the church Leaders that we are drawn to. Leaders that we want to follow. And Paul is warning against those. It is pretty easy to see the success of quote-unquote Christians and Christian groups who seem to have found the key to unlocking great success in ministry. That success is by our definitions. We see massive Buildings filled to the brim with people. We see millions of dollars being poured into social agenda issues. We see thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people tuning in online and watching. Is that success by God's definition? Paul warns against those who are driven by a selfish success. There are really two groups of people that Paul is addressing as he delivers this message. The two groups of people are the Judaizers. These are those who hold tightly to the law, saying we must abide by the law and only by the law. And you must fulfill all of the elements of the law. Yes, you need Christ, but only the elements of the law are that which keeps you there. Then you have the other side. The other side is just as dangerous, and we tend to ignore the other side because we like liberties. But there are those who are drawn entirely to liberty, and they are those who say, I don't care what God's Word says, I'm going to do it my way because I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to get there in the end. You don't have any right to justify or to uh, judge me in those things. And so in Paul's mind, the Judaizers instructed a strict adherence to the law, and he calls the 
those pursuing liberties, the, or we would call them antinomians, who proclaimed only liberty, anti-law. That's what antinomian means, anti-law. So they're against the law. It's all about the freedoms, the liberties that we can express in the Christian life. These two groups remain in the church today, and they were in Paul's day as well. These two groups are prevalent in our societies, our small circles of evangelical influence. Paul's heart, notice what he says in verse 18, because you and I have to pay attention to how Paul responds. Verse 18 says, For many of you, or rather, excuse me, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says, I'm warning you about them. But I'm warning you with sadness. Paul's heart demonstrates sadness and grief. He is warned and now he mourns those who are pseudo-believers. They are synthetic saints. Spiritual masquerades. They look genuine, but they lack reality. They look authentic. They pose as friends, but practice as foes. They look like us. They speak like us. But they are enemies. Paul expresses, or Paul, rather Paul's expression is not half-hearted, as if he secretly approved of their destruction. And certainly, you would imagine Paul had reason to approve of their destruction. Because the greatest obstacle to the Apostle Paul throughout his ministry, if you could point to one group of individuals, he is addressing them in this text, that would be the Judaizers. The Judaizers opposed Paul. When Paul would come into a community, it would be the Judaizers, both in and out of the church, who would drive him out of a community. Paul could have harbored ill will to them, but notice what Paul says. He says, I'm telling you, I've warned you, I'm telling you, and I'm telling you with tears. Paul's moved to grief because of the sadness he feels for those who are going to be destroyed. It's not a half-hearted expression. As Paul contemplates the desolate bleakness of his enemies, of the enemies of the cross, he does so in tears. The word tears means loud lament. He's aching over this. This isn't just the tear that dropped out and manly brushed away from the cheek of Paul. This was lamenting. In the Old Testament, this is very similar to the sackcloth and ashes mourning. This is real pain, and often vocally, the tears were accompanied. So for Paul, in these verses, there is mourning, there is grief, there is lament. As he speaks of the enemies of the cross, Paul's description is going to define the actions of these. He's going to give us four descriptions of them in just a moment, and it's really actions and descriptions. But regardless of the error of the false teachers, it is important that you and I also understand that while tears, lament is coming out of the Apostle Paul, he calls them enemies. 
The word for enemy may seem harsh to those of us who have watched society seek to remove war and conflict and conflict language rather from our church's vocabulary. When I was a kid, I remember marching in whether it be Awana or Sunday school or wherever it was, we were marching. We would sing, marching to Zion. We'd sing, the battle belongs to the Lord and victory in Jesus. We've removed a lot of those battle anthems from the church. Have you noticed? Because culturally it's not appealing. I'm not advocating for those, but I'm saying that the believer's mind must be that which is not lulled by the comforts of a pseudo-peace. Paul doesn't allow you and I to believe that we are in some pseudo-peaceful situation. We are not. There are enemies within the gates. The enemies are internal and external. Paul is not allowing us to be lulled in a civilized society into the comforts of pseudo-peace who would rather sing songs that make us happy than to remind us that we're in a battle. But Paul uses war language. These are war terms. Those who oppose the cross of Christ are not friendlies of a different persuasion. They're saying, well, they've got some different ideologies. They're okay. They're just not of us. That's not what Paul is saying. The word that Paul uses for enemies, the way that he uses this term, is to say that they are openly declaring declaring war on the Lord Jesus Christ. And their initiatives are hostile against the church from within her. There's spies in the midst who seek to destroy. That's the word that Paul uses for enemy. This isn't the cuddly kind of friendly who just has a different ideology than us. Paul is saying there are those within the church who are declaring open war on the church. They will do anything and everything, even unknowingly to them, to sabotage the church. While in the church, they are not believers at all. But they may appear as believers to those who are. And so Paul is saying, follow after my example. Mimic those who follow after the Lord, but be careful there are enemies in the gates. And he goes on now, and we're going to spend the rest of our time, the majority of our time, looking into the devastating description that he gives to us in verse 19. This is why we don't follow them. The devastating description is found here in verse 19, and the scripture there says this, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Boom, 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 boom. Four quick descriptives. As we listen to Paul's description of these people, we could put names and faces to them. Again, Paul is writing to those in Philippi nearly 2,000 years ago. Those who are influenced by Judaizers and antinomians at the same time. He's writing to those who are faithful in the church. The church has been strong in Philippi to this point, but Paul is warning that false teachers are creeping in. And it is easy for false teachers to creep into the church because we are a welcome society, a welcoming society. We want people to come in. We want to be 
those who reach out and share the gospel, and we want to see more and more people fill the chairs in the buildings and to affirm Christ, to accept Christ as their Savior. We want those things to happen. We're desirous of those, and because of that, we're often less than discerning. Paul says, be discerning. Because you and I today, in this generation, could put faces. In fact, I was reading the Christian Post today, this morning. And as I was reading the website, the Christian Post, I noticed three false teachers on the front page. Well-known, large ministries when they were in ministry. And all I had to do was turn on the page, and just three of them filled the screen. We can put faces, we can put names to those that Paul is speaking about in our generation. Those who influence the church through or via the local churches, podcasts, TVs, internet live streams, social media, blogs, and books. We are inundated with more information than ever before. Paul says, watch out for these four characteristics. These four characteristics, believer, somehow remember these. Put them down. Write them down. Write them in a place you'll remember them. Highlight or circle this passage in Scripture and say, watch out for. Something, in some way, look to this pattern. Look to these characteristics and say, I've got to watch out for these. These are generalized statements. The specific situation that's going to happen is already happening. But just because the specific situation isn't mentioned, don't be caught unawares. You are instructed now as we move into verse 19. The first one is, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction because they are condemned. They are condemned. Paul affirms, and this is, This is vitally important for those of us who have been inundated by society and the church at large. Paul affirms that when we look into these individuals and we see these characteristics and we see these attributes, when we see these descriptives lived out before us, it is easy for us to dismiss those and to look only to those things that we perceive to be successes. I've pastored churches in the shadows of megachurches, some of the biggest megachurches in the country. And I can tell you, and it's not all megachurches are this way, but I can tell you that there's a lot of dismissing that goes on in some of those situations. And I pastored in the shadows, nearby areas of a lot of small churches that have had a lot of false teachers in them. Paul's tears are not only for the damage that these people do to the church and to others, but also because they are eternally condemned. Beloved, let us not let that truth pass. When we are dismissive, say, well, I know this guy goes this way, but I'm still going to support the ministry on this side. I'm going to do this on this side. I'm going to listen to him here. I'm going to sing these songs here. Whatever it is, however we've engaged in that ministry, let us not be those who are so naive that we would allow one who is condemned to continue to proclaim their selfish religion. Paul's tears are not only for the damage that these people do to the church, 
but it's also because of their eternal condemnation. One commentator said, these are mere professors of an empty religion whose future is hell and their lives wasted, eternally hopeless. There is a certain terrifying reality that these individuals face. And it doesn't take long for us to put names and faces to the characteristics that are about to be developed. But we should, when we engage with these, we should recognize that there is a society, that there is a group of people who are following all the way after these teachers. And Paul, with tears, sees that trend as well. And he says, the teacher's condemnation is certain. It is real. Paul goes on and he says, verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. This is the first element. Their appetite is defiance. Their appetite is defiance. They're condemned, but their appetite is defiance. They thrive on, they live on, looking like Christians, sounding like Christians, but pursuing selfish ambition. Matching the identity that Paul provided earlier, their actions provide evidence of their defiance. Remember their enemies, Paul, saw, Paul called them? Their first characteristic, we, we can't necessarily see their condemnation. We don't necessarily observe their condemnation in this temporal life, but we know that they are condemned. That is a characteristic, but it's not necessarily observable for us. But we do see their appetite. We can see that there is a defiance in them. Paul says they're enemies and they're defiant. When Paul says that their God is their belly, he is identifying a mark that we see in most emotional-driven movements today. Most emotional-driven movements today are that which tries to pull us in, tries to reel us to a point of acceptance of whatever is going on, but it's all self-centered and self-motivated. This is a group of individuals who are driven only by what satisfies their appetite. And their appetite is not the Word of God. Their appetite is their own self-glory. People of this ilk are totally wrapped up in themselves. We would call them narcissists. But it's broader than just that term. These are people who are totally wrapped up in themselves. They have immersed their lives in sordid fleshly affairs. Not just of the sexual perversion kind, but the self-serving perversion kind. They worship at the shrine of their pleasures. They are driven by an insatiable uh, sensual appetite. And they have no hang-ups about their lack of moral purity. In fact, they'll easily dismiss it away. When your church leaders sound more like politicians, we have a problem. And that's what Paul is calling them. How often have you heard a church leader dismiss the accusations or the charges of moral impurity? And it's really not that big of a deal. I'm a sinner just like you. Paul says... Their appetite is defiance. They are totally absorbed in a rigid 
regiments of dietary laws as they pamper themselves and pander to their every to their every whim and fancy. They follow a set of code. They may be antinomian. They're antinomian to the things of the Word of God. It's the liberties is their new code. There's the two extremes, the law and the liberties. And Paul says, you can be following after, clinging tightly to the law, and you can fight holding firmly to the liberties and pursuing those with great ambition as well. And both of those are wrong. Both of those are leading to the wrong side. Their defiance comes, and listen carefully, because you observe this, you observe it in attitudes, you observe it in uh, just the way that they communicate. Their defiance comes as they are worshipers of themselves. Their God is their belly. They want what they want, and they want it now. Beloved, in our materialistic society, we don't have to look far to find those within the church and without the church who practice this kind of appetite. An appetite for defiance. Sure, they'll sound like Christian on one side, but when you come to corner them or you come to talk to them you'll see it's all about me it's all about what i want it comes in many forms but its roots are anchored in the love for themselves they want their own they want what satisfies their cravings paul goes on as if that was not enough. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. In this case, they're exalting. They're exalting that which ought not to be exalted. Paul says in further description that those who glory or exalt in practices or habits and desires of which they should be ashamed, but they are not. It should drive them to obscurity. It should drive them to shamefulness. But they are not driven in that way. One of those articles this past week that I read this morning on the Christian Post demonstrated a leader who has been disgraced from his church. He was removed from the pulpit. He was removed from his leadership positions over an organization of churches. And he had popped back up in another church whose senior pastor had affirmed and, and cherished the relationship that he had with this disgraced pastor. And now, signs, accusations of further abuse have come out. The senior pastor who had affirmed him seemed surprised. But the, senior, or the pastor who had been disgraced said, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. And even if I did, isn't there forgiveness in the church? His exact words. Even if I did, isn't there forgiveness in the church? Here's a man who exalts in his shame. That which should be shameful, he's not ashamed. These individuals flaunt their sexuality. They defy their God-given gender. They move from bed to bed. They abort their inconvenient babies. 
The race is for their, or they race after their ambition. They openly pursue money. They run like Judas after his 30 pieces of silver. On the outside, he looked like the most successful of all of the disciples of Christ. On the outside, these church leaders look like the most successful of church people. But they glory in their shame. And worse, not only do they do these things, but they are proud of doing them. And they applaud others who do the same. Turn over to Romans briefly, just for a moment. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Scripture says this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those who Paul is speaking of in Romans 1 are those who engage fully in the acts of sensual pleasures, of glorying in their shame. And he's speaking in Romans 1 of those who are outside of the church. But when we come to Philippians chapter 3, he's speaking of those who are both in and out of the church. There are those who have the characteristics of Romans 1 in the church today. Paul says that they haven't lost their characteristics. There's still those who have the same patterns, the same habits, the same sinful, selfish ambitions. And they glory in themselves. Their God is their belly. Their praise, their glory, is those things that should make them feel shame. They no longer feel shame. G.K. Chesterton famously wrote, Fallacies do not cease to to be fallacies because they become fashions. Fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashions. It's fashionable in the church today, in many places in the church today, to thumb your nose at the Lord, to do your own thing, to pursue your own ambitions, and to glory in your shame. They are still tragic diversions from the truth, these fallacies that G.K. Chesterton was writing of. They're still tragic diversions from the truth which heap penalties upon those poor lost souls who are driven to justify their shame and embrace their self-destructive lifestyles. Finally, verse 19. Verse 19 says this, at the very end, all of the verse says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is one of the key components that you and I see as the elements, the descriptions of those who are false teachers. What are they thinking about? What is their grid of operation? As the grid begins to unfold, we recognize that these people have a short-sighted enchantment. They're driven to those things that this world can bring to them. That's very different than the Apostle Paul. That's very different from the Apostles. The grid that these people use to salve their conscience is that they are literally captivated by the things of this earth. They view crowds. They view finances. They, receive, they review, or view possessions. 
as all evidences that God is blessing their ministry, and they'll sell that to you, or they'll try. They'll say, well, look at me. Look at what God has given to me. He's given me a successful ministry. I have multiple campuses that I oversee. I have church of 10,000 people or more, or whatever the thing is that the preacher speaks about. That's what they'll tell the other preachers. But when they're speaking to you, they'll say, but look, I'm wearing... I'm wearing name brand clothes. I drive a really nice car. I have people who follow me. You should follow me too, and the Lord will bless you for doing so. You should do this or that, and the Lord will bless you for doing this or that. They're literally captivated by the things of this earth, and they will try to drive you in the same. Materialism and fame are their religion. They're just willing to couch it in the umbrella of the church. Fashion is their sacred liturgy. Celebrities are their priestly guides. Possessions, their greatest rewards. And earth is their heaven. Sure, these will talk of heaven but they are not captivated by heaven. They are captivated by what they receive today. With tears running down his face, lament in his voice, Paul tells the church in Philippi that for these unbelievers in the church and for all unbelievers, earth is the closest they will ever get to heaven. That's why Paul is lamenting. Because today, for these leaders, for these church people who are not believers, this is as close as they get to heaven. One author writes this, This description isn't their resume, it's their obituary. That is where Paul is at. This is eternal life versus eternal death. Spurgeon preached 160 years ago these words, and I'm going to use it in his old English. He preached these words, As the Lord liveth, sinner, thousands standest on a single plank over the mouth of hell, and that plank is rotten. He went on and said, "Thou Thou hand said is the pit of a solitary rope. In other words, you're clinging to a rope. And the strands of that rope are breaking. That is the attitude of the Apostle Paul as he sees these false teachers in the church. He's warning the believers, avoid, stay away from, and discern who are false teachers. Don't follow after them. Don't be captivated by them. Don't see their bling. Don't see their clothes. Don't see their fame. Don't see their podcast and number of subscribers, don't see their social media posts and numbers of subscribers as the end all for these individuals. Don't see that fame and believe that somehow God has blessed them because the God of this world knows what attracts the selfish, sinful hearts of humanity. And they will attract a crowd. And that crowd will shake their angry little fists 
at an almighty, all-knowing God. And today, in active and open rebellion, continue to say, while still looking like Christians, crucify him, crucify him. How tragic that within the church today, there are those who would receive the approval of people just as Judas had. And their end is just as his. From the outside looking in, and even from the inside looking around the inside, Judas seemed like he had it all together. But Judas would take on a new look in the church of Philippi. And he's taken on a new look today in the church today. And now Judas wears expensive sneakers. He wears expensive watches. He wears clothes from the greatest, most expensive designers. He flies jets. And he has millions of followers online. Judas today is also that successful Christian. Sits in the chairs that everybody just admires. Everybody wants to be like. But when you talk to him, you say, something's wrong. Something just is not right. He's all about himself. He's all driven about what he wants. How tragic it is that those still exist in the church today. And how tragic it is that we are drawn to them. Judas running after 30 pieces of silver to sell his Savior to the cross. Thinking together on some applications from this passage, Paul didn't give us a list to say that there are false teachers out there. He didn't just give us this list to say, well, they're there. Here's your list. He gave, to the, he gave this list to the Philippians because there were false teachers in their midst. And there are false teachers in our midst in the church today. Their message is appealing because it coddles our self-love. It satisfies our great desires, albeit temporarily. Paul is urging us to take the path less traveled, to follow his example. To mimic him as he moves ahead towards the things of Christ. Yes, that means that the road will be less than comfortable. It certainly was for the Apostle Paul. But there is more than this temporary habitation for you and I. Lord willing, next week we'll move on and close out the chapter and move into chapter 4. But this is how Paul does it. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul says, set your mind on things that are of eternal value. Look to heaven. 
Don't look to the temporary things. Don't look to the things that attract a crowd because this is temporary. We close the chapter next week, Lord willing, with eyes firmly fixed on heaven and the eternity that awaits those who eagerly anticipate the appearing of Christ. So Paul has given to us a bit of a parenthesis, saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I lean into heaven. But be careful, because the track is not smooth. It's filled with the potholes of those false teachers, those self-deceptive, self-worshipping individuals who are trying, agonizing to pull you in and to pull you away from Christ. So our application today is, as we observe teachers, I don't care who they are, as we observe Christians who are charismatic in their influence where people are attracted to them, as we observe ideologies and theologies, that we would be practical in understanding who's who, that we would be discerning and knowing who is following after the things of the Lord. And who's falling after the things that satisfies their bellies, whose end is destruction, who exalt in their shame, and who are captivated by the entramp, 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 entrapments of this world. Let us be those who are diligent in discerning and defining who they are. Let us close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads. We know that within the church today, there are those who seek to pull us away. It's not a message that we really want to hear because we want to be liked. We want others to be influenced. And we have this idea in our minds that if we just draw in near to them, that they will be influenced for the things of Christ that will lead them along to the things of Christ. But I praise you that Paul is very bold in telling us that this group who is within the church, these false teachers who are pulling away believers or trying to pull them away, they're certainly short-circuiting their faithfulness to the things of the Lord. Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified as we discern who these individuals are that we would avoid them instead pursue full, with full diligence those who are serving You, who are like Paul, that we mimic our faith after them. Lord, it is not easy and we know it. It is not simple and we know it. It is not convenient and we know it. Lord, I pray that You would allow us to see the value of a heavenly anticipation a heavenly fixation. That we would not be about the things of this world, that we would not be about those things that bring us fame and glory, but instead that we'd be about those things that bring You glory, that exalt Your name, that praise You in every way. Lord, cause us to be obedient, to demonstrate Your grace and mercy to those who are lost. But let us also be those who are cautious and avoiding those who are false teachers, fleeing from their presence, and fleeing to the security of your word and the ministry of the Spirit of God. 
So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for these things. As we sing praises again to you, may we lift our voices in unity. May your name be glorified as we exalt you together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.